Hello, let's talk about social inclusion. Today we explore the concept of racial macroaggressions and how it relates to white supremacy. We welcome two amazing guests, Johnny Williams from Trinity College in the United States and David Embrick from the University of Connecticut in the US. We will be talking about the limitations of viewing microaggressions as individual behavior only and about the importance of recognizing historical and systemic roots in capitalism, colonialism, or indigenous erasure as a source for these microaggressions. I'm Rodrigo Silva. Let's talk about social inclusion. Johnny, David, welcome. Thank, Thank you, you for welcome. having me. Yeah. Johnny, racial microaggressions. What are we talking about here? Well, this is a concept that was developed by an American by the name of Chester Pierce back in the 1970s. And the concept, he designed it to try to make sense of the kind of mental kind of incursions that, that white supremacy makes upon Black and people who we refer to as Black in the United States, but I just refer to them as Black and because they're just human beings, right? But And so what he was trying to do was to diagnose them. That is, how does it that these subtle forms of assaults, right, these micro-assaults, he called them, pro-aggressions, that are daily experienced by people in a white supremacist society, how does that then affect them mentally as well as physically? But he was dealing with them mentally as a psychiatrist because he was a psychiatrist. He kept it at the level of the pre-conscious as well as the unconscious when looking at these things that the aggressors in this instance are people who are white and are white people. And they then interact with people on a daily basis with these slight kinds of aggressions, right? Like say, oh, I didn't know you were that smart. I didn't know that you could, uh, you could articulate it that way. Oh, you are articulate. You're very articulate. Like if you aren't articulate and stuff like that, these are various forms of microaggressions. And stuff. So as the peers did, what he wanted to do was to, to diagnose that and blacking people how it affects them and stuff. But he also looked at the structural components of it too. We call these offensives, these micro offensives, that they are very collective in their orientation because they're designed to maintain white supremacy. Now that part of his analyses was left off when microaggressions appeared again in the 1990s with this fellow by the name of Dabrad Sue who came up with a, you know, he published an article in, I think, the American Psychological Journal that, that reintroduced the concept to the, to, to the American public as well as to the world. And it, it's, it just basically neglected the structural component. And it only talked about individual kinds of interactions that are going on. Of course. And that's essentially that what he's talking about. Johnny, I read your article and the importance of this research is quite clear. I say it seems quite clear. So there are structural systemic sources to racist behavior. Tell us more about that. Well, the first thing you need to understand is that when you look at the social sciences or any science, especially coming out of Europe that dominates the world today, that it's a concept, science itself obscures, at least from its beginning, obscures white supremacy. And the microaggression concept as a social scientific concept as currently used, not as Charles Pierce used it, but as 
currently being used now around the world, in the United States particularly, obscures how white supremacy works. And it obscures the reality of Blacking people as a result of that, right? And it obscures that by being, by it talking about transforming white people's attitudes when it comes to their interactions with Blacking people, right, in the United States, right? So it's not going to look at the systemic nature of white supremacy itself. It's only going to examine those individual kinds of transformative ways that somehow you can re-educate and make white people aware of what they're doing, but it's not designed to eliminate white supremacy. Now, that's a big gap that we're looking at with this concept, that most sociologists, most social sciences, uh, scientists do not look at this as a problem. They just uncritically adapt the concept and apply it. But it's not doing what they think it is doing because some people naively believe that they're, by re-educating white people, right, making them aware of what they're doing, that's how they eliminate white supremacy. And it's just not the case because we're talking about a social system. And the social system consists of these kinds of discourses, these actions, these mental constructs, ideology, belief systems, and so forth that just don't fall by the wayside in terms of practice. Okay. David, would you like to follow up on this part? Yeah. And I think I think what's important here is that we're not trying to really sort of reconceptualize racial microaggressions. What we're trying to do is go back to Chester Pierce's original kind of theorization of this concept and add in the second part of the equation. I think it's important. You know, one of the things that has happened and as Johnny mentioned, is that sometime in the 1990s, psychologists in general started with Daryl Wing Sue, sort of pursued this line. Now, prior to Daryl Wing Sue, there were some sociologists, right? Philomena Essett, for example, wrote on everyday racism that sort of captured some, I think, more structural kind of understandings of these microaggressions, right? But sociologists kind of the way we look at it uh, kind of fell by the wayside and psychologists picked it up for the most part. And if you look since then, the majority, not all, but the majority of research on racial microaggressions has their theoretical underpinnings using Daryl Wing Sue's concept or something sort of similar, right? Which is very individualistic. And so what we want to do and what we tried to do with this article was to sort of bring it all back, not to dismiss what's been written already, but to say that the equation is both at the individual and structural levels. And what has been sort of forgotten is the structural sort of issues of white supremacy. And that's what we really need to look at. And there are major implications that we, I'm sure we're going to talk about soon. Of course, exactly. I was thinking about that. So you merged, I think, both the importance and the research gap that you were following. So I'm just mm -hmm. going to jump this one and ask you, David, even though it's hard it's more like a theoretical discussion, as you told me before. Sure, sure. Let me know about some potential findings that some reflections that you did, many reflections of your work. Oh, absolutely. I mean, if you sort of think about it more holistically, then you can sort of translate that to, and I'm going to go back to Johnny's point earlier, right? Because if you're really thinking about racial microaggressions only at the individual level, then you're going to be thinking about the consequences at the individual level. And the implications will be done at the individual level. The solutions will be done at the individual level, right? So then it becomes just about people. So it's about the tolerance of people, right? As opposed to the continuation of how racism operates within a system. And then there's also, and I don't want to jump in too far, but for example, one of the things that 
we've learned is it's the cumulative, deleterious cumulative effects of racial microaggressions that are important. So, so it's not about a slice in time when an actor does or says something to another person that results in a micro assault is that this happens, according to Philomena Essid, every day, right? And so there's a cumulative effect. But here's where we come in, if you bridge both the individual and the structural together, is that it's much more egregious than that, right? So it it is not just that in an everyday life situation, a person of color, a Black person may be may face racial microaggressions by individuals daily, but it's mm-hmm. also their interactions with the environment, their interactions with the institutions, right? I mean, using in a U.S. example, you know, walking to the store and seeing a Confederate flag, right, which sort of brings up kind of a lot of memories and ideas and thoughts and symbols that will also raise your blood pressure and also create anxiety, right? As a student living in a dorm that's named after a former slave owner, walking into an institution, not seeing anyone who looks like you represented on statues or on the wall, having a curriculum that fails to include women and people of color, right? And there are countless examples, right? And so you have to add to that. And if it's that plus the daily kind of verbal assaults that you get, micro assaults that you get from people, then it's not just cumulative, but the damage to your health and the damage, the physiological damage to one's person is much more than I think I think we give credit, even in terms of understanding it from a health point of view, right? The health of the racial health disparities is much more than what we're even writing about. So I think it's just, it's not necessarily making it complicated, but I think it's, it's drawing awareness to just how serious this is when you want to talk about mortality rates or th- those kind of issues, right? Of course. And you have given also several real case scenarios on which this situation applies. And Johnny, I'd like to follow up on this and discuss potential policy impacts uh, about, about your reflections. Well, first of all, I think if, well, well, let me put it this way. In a white supremacist society and in academia, which is basically a tool of white supremacy in a white supremacy society. And the academic tool within these institutions, as well as, say, the political institutions, the educational institutions that are not in academia, but at large, the cultural institutions and so forth, they are all basically tools for the very everyday interactions of recreating this reality, right? So one of the policy implications of this is to move people along to make this kind of interactive connection between this kind of everyday kinds of assaults and these kinds of structural mechanisms that these everyday assaults maintain. Because this is a collective endeavor. This is not something that most people in the United States like to think of the world as if an institution is working on its own, when in fact the institution depends on the people in it to make it go. The institution wouldn't be without the people, right? So if people understood that when we talk about white supremacy, systemic racism, that it is about action, right? And not merely just belief systems and transforming the way one thinks, even though that's important, that maybe then we can actually work to eliminate white supremacy globally as well as in the United States, right? So, so. This is what the biggest policy implication is, but it's also another one when it comes to just academia. It's just making people aware, academics and scholars aware that this is what they're doing, because a lot of people are not reflective about uh, the fact that they're only talking about this individualistic notion. Now, 
Now, let me say this stuff was before us, as we say in our piece. Mir Carl Cabral, W.E.B. Du Bois, right? All of these people who came before us, France Fanon, they all made us aware of this problem through the process of global capitalism and colonialism and imperialism, right? They made us aware of it. And in the United States, and I'm only talking about the United States because this is what I know, right? The United States, people want to forget that kind of legacy and how that legacy continues to operate in the present day through these various concepts that we make up. So it becomes problematic as far as I'm concerned. So if people are made aware of this, we can begin to start to address and dismantle the system of white supremacy, which no doubt also has to dismantle capitalism, which is a big part of it. Capitalism and white supremacy go hand in hand. Of course. And as you said, Johnny, so this reflection, your debate touches upon several concepts, a lot of social dynamics. David, I would like you to tell us a bit now how to continue the reflection. Also, what doors does it open for future debate on the topic? Where should we go now? Well, that's the thing. I think that, and again, I'm, I'm a sociologist, so, so for sure I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to target this population. But I think it's, it's time that we, that sociologists get back on the bandwagon and really look at racial microaggressions from the vantage point that Philomena Essay, folks like Philomena Essay, but also the, the references that Johnny has sort of brought up have done already, right? Because again, what's happening is, I think there's great research out there, but it's all being sort of, I guess, strung along theoretically by, by psychologists. And again, good stuff, but it's a half of equation. So I think part of it is for social scientists in general to, to maybe think a little bit more broadly about how to bridge the two, or at least how to think about this more structurally when you're thinking about racial microaggressions, because the implications are there. The implications are, they're strong in terms of like the real effects that these have on people's lives. A tip for the sociologists that are listening to us. Johnny, could you provide some materials, some other content that our listeners can follow up to further explore these reflections? Well, in the piece, we list out and we say strongly that the neglected scholarship of people who came from the Caribbean, mm -hmm. the African continent, as well as the United States, and the, just the Americas, period, could be explored and connected and linked to this. So People should go and read, I mean, Institutional Racism by Stokely Carmichael and Charles Hamilton. I mean, a very important piece, right? W.E. Du Bois, anything you can get. Franz Fanon, everything he ever wrote before he passed away at a young age. You should read this stuff because it connects this stuff together about the interaction between structure, right, and belief systems, right? How they interact together, right? In action itself, structure and action, right? So... I think that's where your readers can go to try to figure out where to go further. Now, you can read what everybody else is saying in racial microaggression right now. The overwhelming, the overwhelming majority of the scholarship is still individualistic. It's not really talking about this kind of structural, this interactive process between structure and belief systems. And I would add quickly to that, if I can, I, I keep mentioning her name, but I would encourage people to read Philomena Essett, right? I mean, that's a good starting point. And I would also encourage people to read fully more Chester Pierce, right? It's also about, I think we need to give more recognition to him as the, the person who coined racial microaggressions, but also to sort of read beyond the individualistic kind of analysis that he does and look at the second part of the equation that people sort of seem to forget. Does the, can he, could he have gone further? Well, well, probably, but that he, he's not a sociologist. So, so there's some limitations, but I, that's something that most people sort of gloss over. And so to bring that back home. David, you have done this 
several times in our conversation, but I'm going to ask you now as a punchline to tell us in two, three sentences, what's the grand finale of this conversation? So what would you like our audience to remember about this? Well, I think the important thing here is to understand that there's much more to racial microaggressions than just the individualistic kind of notions of racial microassaults or some of the concepts that have been sort of thrown around um, in the directions. And it's really important in terms of thinking about issues of diversity or thinking about issues of racism or talking about them that we sort of move beyond, right? That we think about systemic racism, that we think about white supremacy in the larger sense, right? And this includes with racial microaggressions. Straight to the point. Johnny, David, it was a pleasure. Thank, Thank you, you so much. This podcast is powered by Cogitatio Press. You can listen to this episode on the Let's Talk About Social Inclusion website, on Cogitatio Press YouTube channel, and whatever you get your podcasts.